I'll be reading from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 22. In the Pew Bible, it is on page 21 of the New Testament. So Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, good afternoon. before I, before I start in the message, I do want to mention uh, that we had our first Sunday morning men's discipleship 
accountability and brotherhood meeting this morning. There were 16 men uh, that showed up for this. Guys, uh, I am rejoicing in what God has started among us. Uh, this is going to happen every Sunday from 7.30 to 9 o'clock. Every Sunday except for the first Sunday of each month. So uh, the level of interest is such that we're probably going to have to relocate into a bigger room uh, almost as soon as we started on this. What a, what a joy it has been already. Uh, I wanted to mention to my sisters in the Lord, um, please know that one of the reasons why we started this this ministry, one of the reasons we actually discussed together as men this morning is our love for you as our sisters in Christ. You see, we, we realize we live in a world in which men are too often derelict and deadbeat. Uh, even worse, too often destructive and abusive. And we want you to hear, ladies, sisters in Christ, we want you to hear and we hope our actions will prove that we are a group of men who are committed to something different than this world offers. As a group, out of devotion to Christ, our Savior and Lord and example, and out of love for you. Uh, we are committed to being, becoming men in whom you can trust. Becoming men with whom you can feel safe. Becoming men from whom you will receive brotherly love and care and leadership and support and nurture and respect and protection and love. Um, these are our commitments as your brothers in the Lord, and we hope, we hope, particularly for those sisters among us who have had multiple devastating experiences with men, that our lives will be different, and that the fruit of that in your life will be a measure of safety and security that perhaps you've never felt or known before. Sisters, please pray for us. This is our heart for you. And brothers, I don't think you want to miss these Sunday mornings. We are committing to things sacred, things holy, things good among us. Let's pray right now. Our Father in heaven, would you please secure those thoughts that I've just expressed in every one of our hearts as men who are in this place, that we would be true men of God, godly in character, trustworthy in character, respectful and gracious in character, like Jesus who has loved us and given Himself for us. And may our sisters in the Lord know personally and deeply with a sweet sense of Your grace what it is to feel safe and 
to feel respected and cared for in your church. Lord, be with us in these ways, I pray. And now, Lord, be with us as we open your word. May it be precious to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, as we have come to this text, Matthew 21, I confess that I have wrestled with the text all week long, trying to discern right up to this afternoon how best to capture uh, and how best to apply the core message of the text that Katie has just read in our hearing. I'm still not exactly sure about the best way to do this, but I have settled on something pretty simple uh, and pretty direct, and with the prayer that God will speak to us, let's proceed. We see in this text and in its context two major um, realities. First, there are in this text seven realms over which King Jesus rules. And then there are three responses from which we can choose as we think about who Jesus is as King and as Lord. So there are seven realms over which Jesus reigns, and then three responses from which we can choose and we will choose one of these three if indeed we are going to respond to His reign. So quickly, let's start with the seven realms over which King Jesus reigns. If you've been with us throughout this whole, co- this whole series through the Gospel of Matthew, you will know already that we, the major theme of this book is that Jesus is King. He is King Jesus. We have come to enjoy, to delight in that title and that name. He is King Jesus, our Savior. And in this text, many of the lines of truth that Matthew has recorded to show to us that Jesus is King are brought together in in these 20 or 21 or 22 verses. And I want us to to skim through these this afternoon so that by way of review of the whole book of Matthew and by way of understanding of this text, we see what God has for us. So there are these seven realms over which King Jesus rules. The realm of nature, the realm of history, the realm of religion, the realm of disease, the realm of the impossible, the realm of sin and judgment, and the realm of grace and mercy. These are the seven realms over which Jesus reigns. Let's go through them simply this afternoon. First, He reigns over the realm of nature. We see this first in how He deals with a couple of donkeys, and then we see this in how He deals with a bush. First of all, we see him reign over a couple of donkeys. In verses 
1 through 3, we read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Striking as we read this text that King Jesus doesn't ask for permission to use these donkeys. He doesn't put in a request. What he says is, if anyone asks you about these, just tell them the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. Now this whole scenario here might seem a bit presumptuous. You might look at Jesus here and say, hey, that seems a little pushy. It seems perilously close to stealing. Except for one thing. Whose donkeys are they? They belong to Jesus. They are His donkeys. Psalm 50 and verse 10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. So the donkeys belong to Jesus. He was not taking somebody else's donkeys. He was claiming his own. He is exercising creator, owner, privilege here. He rules over nature and all its creatures. We see this in what he does to the bush in verses 18 and 19. The next morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And we see interesting here in this text, this mixture of Jesus' humanity and his deity brought together. He is hungry And yet he rules over bushes. The disciples ask, how did this fig tree wither at once? The answer is, because its maker told it to. Because the Lord of creation said, wither. Wither. We'll see in a few minutes how this episode with the bush is symbolic. It's kind of an enacted parable to declare that Jesus has a reign over sin and judgment and over people as well. But in the moment, it right now, in right now, let's just notice this, he told it to die. And it did. Because Jesus is Lord of nature, Lord of creation. It all belongs to Him. Every plant that has ever lived and grown and then died has done so by the decree of King Jesus. All of the universe is subject to His reign. He holds it all together. He, As we learned a couple of weeks ago, He has made it all and He sustains it all by a word of His power. And if in one moment He withdraws His sustaining power over a fig tree, over an elephant, over a blue whale, or over you and me, 
in that moment we perish. He is Lord of creation. He rules over the realm of nature. Second, He rules over the realm of history. Look at verses 4 and 5 and see that His riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is one more of multiplied dozens of prophecies that were made way back in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus' life. These fulfilled prophecies prove that He is the true God-sent King. But fulfilled prophecy does more than build credibility for King Jesus. It does more than prove that He is King. It proves that He rules over the realm of history. What it proves, when someone predicts hundreds of years back in history that something is going to happen hundreds of years ahead in history, and then it does happen in history just as predicted, well, what does that prove? It proves that whoever predicted it is Lord of history. It proves that He is the King of history. It proves, as many have put it, that history is His story. History belongs to God. And for that reason, He is able to predict what happens hundreds of years ahead. Isaiah 46, verses 9-11, through we read, I am God, and there is no other. I am God. And there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. This is who Jesus is. He is the one who rules over history. And His counsel right down to the prediction in the moment in this text. He says to his disciples, if anyone asks you, what are you doing with the donkey? Tell them the Lord needs them and they will give it to you. He predicted even that. Right down to that small choice. Because he's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over the sequence of time. He is king over it all. He rules over the realm of nature. He rules over the realm of religion. Third, He rules over the realm of history. Third, He rules over the realm of religion. Look at verses 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Both His actions and His words prove His authority over the religion and the religious establishment of His day. The temple, He says, is My house. Think about that. Think about that. I hesitate if somebody says, Tim, how's your church going? It ain't My church. It's not Mine. 
I will build my church, said Jesus. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus says, it's my church, and it's my house, and because it's my house, you will do only what I permit in my house. And if you misbehave in my house, well, I'm going to throw over your tables, and I'm going to grab a whip, and I'm going to drive you out. Because I'm the king. I'm the king. What Jesus is doing here is something of an act of counter-revolution. You see, what had happened over time is that his house had been taken over by robbers and thieves and, and rebels. Jesus steps in at this point in his life and ministry just a week before he dies for us. He steps into the temple and he says, it's my house. And it's my father's house. And if you're not going to act as I tell you to act in this house, then get out. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. Jesus is retaking, if you will, the throne that is rightly His in the house that belongs to Him. Jesus rules over nature. Jesus rules over history. Jesus rules over the realm of religion. And fourth, Jesus rules over the realm of disease. Notice verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them. There's never been a disease. There has never been an infirmity. There has never been a physical or mental challenge that He could not overcome. He is sovereign over it all. It's so important to notice the little phrase that indicates where He did this. The blind and the lame came to Him where? In the temple. And He healed them. Throughout most of His ministry to this point, Jesus has done all of His miracles out in the countryside and here and there stayed for the most part away, of, away from Jerusalem. But in this moment, He first of all drives out the, the frauds, drives out the charlatans, steps in and says, this is my house and now that it's my house, I'm doing what I came to do. The lame and the blind come and I'm going to heal you. I'm going to do what I'm going to do in my house. And the rest of you get out, he says. What Jesus is saying here is that the temple is his domain. And he is saying, in my house, people don't get robbed. They get restored. In my house, people don't get harassed. They get healed. In my house, People don't get scammed. They get saved. In my house, kindness and compassion and mercy and healing prevail. This is how it's going to be. I'm taking over again, King Jesus says. He rules over the realm of nature, over the realm of history, over the realm of religion. He rules over the realm of disease. And then fifth, He rules over the realm of the impossible. Look at verses 20 through 22. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? 
And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, probably pointing at the Mount of Olives in that moment, even if you were to say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Moving mountains was an old idiom and figure of speech for doing the impossible. And Jesus here proves His kingdom authority over the realm of the impossible by telling us that as we pray for the impossible, He will give us what we ask, assuming, of course, that it is according to His will and plan. The impossible is His to do and His to give. Now, I remember as a young child reading this text and lying in bed at night and saying, wow, this is pretty cool. If I just believe hard enough, God's going to move that mountain over there. Any of you ever go through that stage of faith, like taking these things, promises so literally without maturity, without a real understanding of what's really impressive and impossible, we kind of create it, you know, we create these scenarios in which God, if you're really God, you'll do this, right? And we're acting like little children when we do that. And we're forgetting. We're forgetting God is not our genie. You know, God, God is not there just to do every wish and whim that we may have. And we're also forgetting what are the really impressive, impossible things. The impressive, impossible things in this world are not moving a mountain. It's moving a heart. The impressive and impossible things of this world are not so much in the sensational miracle external, but in a transformed life where you see somebody who was once an addict who is now clean. When you see somebody who was once alone and and barren in life who is now rejoicing and full of the goodness of God. When you see someone who was once greedy, now content, who was once paralyzed by self-interest and self-indulgence, who now just lives a life that is fully lived to the glory of God. That's a mountain that has been moved. We get our priorities or our wishes all messed up when we, when we think about a literal mountain. No, we're, we're thinking about the real miracles here, folks. Jesus is saying, look, I have the authority to change lives. I have the authority to do what nobody else can do. I am king over the impossible. I am king that changes lives. And then in the sixth place, Jesus rules over the realm of sin and judgment. Of course, we saw this already in what He did in the temple, right? He pronounces judgment upon sin and then flexes His muscle, if you will, in exercising that judgment and taking action against those who were sinning against Him, sinning against His Father, and sinning against others. And he, and he alone, has the right to exercise this kind of indignation and say, not here anymore. I am am king over the realm of sin and judgment. And I'm pronouncing judgment here. And folks, 
that really is what's behind the incident with the fig tree. It's a fascinating moment in Jesus' life as he demonstrates his authority over nature. But it's meant to symbolize a truth about people. That when people, even though they may have leaves that decorate their body, when people do not bear fruit, when people do not prosper spiritually, when people do not truly respond to Him, they look good from the outside, but they are not fruit-bearing. Jesus says the day is going to come when He will pronounce His judgment on them. Jesus rules over the realm of sin and judgment in Acts chapter 17. It is said of Jesus, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man Jesus, whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. God has appointed a day of judgment, and He has appointed the judge. And on that day, He will judge the world in righteousness, in justice. We long for justice, but brothers and sisters, we are barely going to taste any of it in this life, but in the life to come, it is going to come in full measure. Justice will be done, and He will judge the world in righteousness, in justice, in fairness, and in equity. Nobody is going to get worse than they deserve. Everybody is going to get what they deserve unless they have trusted in Him as their Savior, first of all, so that they get better than they deserve. But Jesus will never unjustly punish or over punish anyone there are those there are those who really struggle with the bible's doctrine of judgment and the bible doctrine of hell and part of the reason for the struggle is that many assume that the idea of hell is that God just takes everybody who rejects Jesus throws them into this lake of fire and they all get the same thing and that is injustice god is going to judge every single person with precise judgment so that every single one gets exactly what is their due in proportion to what each one's heart and actions and words and intentions deserve. No worse. But unless they're in Christ, no better either. I don't know about you, but I don't want to face the king of Matthew 21 as judge. I don't want the day to come when he overturns my table and drives me out of his house. I want to make sure that I'm ready to meet that king. I want to make sure that I, on that day, hear him say to me, welcome home. Welcome home. There's only one way to be sure of that, and that is to bow your knee to Jesus as Savior today so you don't have to bend your knee to Him as judge on that day. Repent. 
Acts 17, he commands everyone everywhere to repent because this day of judgment is coming. Jesus reigns over these realms, the realm of nature, the realm of history, the realm of disease, the realm of religion, the realm of the impossible, the realm of sin and judgment, and finally, the realm of grace and mercy. The realm of grace and mercy. For what does this te text tell us? Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble. <laughs> humble. And riding on a donkey. He is the humble king. He is the gentle king. He is the merciful king. And so the crowds, they begin to sing and celebrate. And they declare His Lordship, that He is the Son of David. And then they cry out with loud song, Hosanna! Hosanna! Which means what? O Lord, save! Save us, O Lord! Because He is the King who rules over the realm of grace and mercy. He is the saving King, the redeeming King, the merciful King. He is the King who rules over the realm of nature, of history, of disease, of religion, of the impossible, of sin and judgment, and of grace and mercy. The seven realms of the King. And now, three responses from which we have to choose. Outright rejection, passing infatuation, or enduring devotion. Those are our three options. Outright rejection, passing infatuation, or enduring devotion. Those three responses are found in our text or in the context around our text. First of all, the rejection option is in verses 14 and 15. The blind and the lame came to Him in His temple and He healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Think about that. When they saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, He was healing people, He was restoring people, He was giving sight to people, they, instead of rejoicing in what He was doing, were indignant. Why? Because they had made up their minds, no matter what He said, no matter what He did, they were not going to bow their knees to Him. It is utter, outright rejection. And brothers and sisters and friends, we see this in the world today. We see it. It's, it's amazing to me. It's tragic. In this world today, you can believe in and be committed to every possible God and idol and religion on the planet except Jesus. If... It doesn't matter in the eyes of the world if you believe in the most far out thing. But as soon as you believe in Christ, you will be hated. Because Jesus is hated by this world. He is utterly rejected by this world. The world rejects the reign and rule of Christ. Why? Because the world wants to rule itself. 
People want autonomy and self-rule, and so they choose self-rule and slavery to self and sin instead of surrender to Christ. And they like to package it, my friends, with outer layers of sophistication and enlightenment. But if you peel off those top layers, all you find underneath is people are willing to believe in and commit to anything and anyone except Jesus. This happened in the days of Christ Himself. It happens still today. Don't make that choice. Don't make that choice. The second option is infatuation. There's a a sobering lesson to learn from these early disciples and from the crowd of people in Jerusalem. It is doubtful that more than a very few of them were actual believers in Jesus. Verse 10 says that the whole city was involved in this, at the minimal asserting that he was a prophet. In John's account, the Pharisees claimed that the whole world was going to Jesus. The indicators are that nearly everybody, or at least a huge majority of the people in Jerusalem, both those who lived there and those who were on pilgrimage to be there during Passover, had gotten onto the Jesus bandwagon. But it looks very much like infatuation and not devotion. Because where were these people five days later? This is Palm Sunday. Five days later, Good Friday. Not more than five days after Palm Sunday, large crowds from the same city are crying, Crucify Him. Crucify Him. With not a word spoken in His defense by anyone. Even His disciples fled and denied Him. You see, there were, there were events that unfolded between Palm Sunday and Good Friday that people did not like and people did not expect. Here's what happened. When Jesus came on the scene on Palm Sunday, it looked like He was going to be king to overcome the Romans and the oppressors of their day. It looked like He was going to come in power and conquest and victory, and they were all on board with this. This is what they wanted. But when it became clear over the next hours and days that the road to conquest and freedom was not going according to their plan, when it became clear that it was not going to be some kind of triumphant um, magisterial battle won where the king just crushed his enemies, when it became clear that instead of crushing his enemies, he was going to be crushed by his enemies, then they wanted nothing to do with him. Think about it. Let me help you get your minds around this kind of fickle infatuation. Virtually all of us in this room this afternoon are mourning because a football season is now over. It's over for you Eagles fans. It's... It is over for the one or two Patriots fans in this room. And I was thinking about this. Imagine if Carson Wentz had announced that he came 
to make the eagles great and victorious. Promising to lead the eagles to victory over all their enemies. Imagine the public support and praise and delight. But then you found out that what he meant by that, what he, the victory he was promising was something very different than what you had in mind. When he promised victory, you thought he meant crushing the cowboys and everyone else in his path, when what he really meant was victory in the realm of character. That through the process of losing, you would become a better person. Imagine the booing and the hissing and the hating when his definition of victory conflicted with theirs, with yours. That's what's going on in the last week of our Savior's life. He promised victory. He promised freedom. He promised justice. He promised mercy. He promised a new kingdom. But the kingdom he had in mind was different than what they had in mind. And when he didn't deliver what they expected him to deliver, they turned on him in fickle, fickle betrayal and denial. They had the right words on the outside, but the wrong expectation and the wrong heart on the inside. We need to learn from this, my friends. Let me ask the question, can, can you envision a situation in your life when you worship and praise God on Sunday and then are disappointed and maybe even mad at God on Friday? Before you shake your head no too quickly, my guess is it's happened in your life. You see, because we have expectations of God. We think He's going to deliver happiness how we want it delivered. We think it's going to come, and, and this is especially so in our prosperous culture. We think His blessing is going to come to us in the form of health and prosperity and success and things working out how we want them to work out. And when Jesus doesn't deliver what we expect, we get mad at Him for disappointing us. And I'm not exaggerating mad at Him. People are mad at God. And they're mad at God because their expectations of God's blessings are different than what He intends. This is a hard lesson for us to learn, but it is a necessary lesson for us to learn or else we will be like this crowd. We will be like them. We will be like them if Jesus doesn't deliver what we want. We will be mad bitterly disappointed. If you think that Jesus came to deliver you from all disease in this life, you will be disappointed with Jesus. 
If you think that Jesus promised to deliver you from all persecution for your faith and godliness, you are going to be disappointed in Jesus. If you think that Jesus promised to deliver you from oppression and injustice in full in this life or from some other great evil, you will be disappointed. If you think Jesus promises to make you rich and keep you free and powerful and privileged, then you are going to be disappointed. If you think Jesus has promised a faith without cost, forgiveness without repentance, Victory without sacrifice. Salvation without persecution. Transformation without humble obedience. If, if you think Jesus is going to deliver things nicely and neatly and wonderfully and happily to you, you will be disappointed. And if you don't adjust your expectations, that disappointment will lead to great grief. It will lead to anger. And you may not think it possible, that, but it might be leading you to say, crucify Him. I know people, I know people who have utterly rejected God, turned their back on God because God didn't deliver what they thought He was going to deliver. We need to be free from our false expectations. Jesus loves us with an incredible love. He is good and He is kind and He is a deliverer and He is a king, but He is not going to pamper us and He isn't going to give us what we want any more than He's going to give us what we need. He's going to rule and reign over the difficult circumstances of our lives because He rules and reigns over the realm of the impossible and He turns them all around and brings good out of them. That's who He is. That's who He is. We live in a generation of professing Christians who have come to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They've come to Jesus thinking that He's going to take all their problems away when in reality He's going to multiply their problems so that through those problems they might grow to know Him and love Him and trust Him and be content with Him alone, with Him alone, with Him alone. Which leads us to option number three. Let's not reject Him. Let's not be infatuated with Him. Let us be utterly and enduringly devoted to Him. He is worthy of our allegiance, is He not? He is worthy of our devotion. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow me. Don't reject the cross. Don't reject suffering. Follow me on the path of the cross and of suffering, and I will give you eternal life. True devotion to King Jesus. Jesus first and Jesus only and Jesus on the throne and Jesus out front and Jesus at the wheel and Jesus for all of life. An enduring commitment where we follow Him closely and we imitate Him carefully and we study Him and His words comprehensively. And then for His glory, we harvest others. We gather them in consistently. He is the King. He is the King who is committed to our joy and to our 
happiness forever and ever. But if we would have him, we must be willing to lose everything else. But he is worthy. He is worthy. For he is the king who rules over the realm of nature. Over the realm of history. Over the realm of religion. Over the realm I'm forgetting. Help me. All those realms. And every realm. And the eternal realm. Are you ready to meet the king? I see a lot of children here today. It's wonderful. Are you ready to meet the king? King Jesus. Oh, what a wonderful king and savior he is. There may be times when he guides our life down paths that we don't enjoy. But based on the promise of the king of history and the Lord Jesus himself, I tell you that at the end of that path, you will find him. And he will fill you with joy. We are in a season of grief as a church as we've lost some dear ones of late. The grief is ours. The gladness is theirs. That's not a cliche. That's the fulfillment of the promise of King Jesus. As, as Ron and as Beverly passed from this life, they passed into paradise. They passed into the presence of the king. They've seen his throne now. They've bowed down and worshipped him. And they are still doing it and will continue doing it until we get there. And then it will go on and on and on forever. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Fill our hearts, living God. Fill our hearts with your goodness and glory. King Jesus, show us how beautiful and wonderful you are. Father, give saving faith to each one here, no matter how old or how young. Show them the beauty of Jesus. Oh, please, Father please, for Jesus' sake and in His glorious, supreme, exalted name we pray. Amen.